With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Docs of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. Tonight, we are doing our October mailbag episode. It's Dr. David Salas, and I'll be hosting. I'm Nathan Brown. Really excited to be going through your questions. You've come out with a lot of great ones, and we hope that we can address them and discuss them, both from our clinical background, our personal background with running, and our background as coaches and other things like that. So before we do that, though, today, the day that we're recording, is the evening of the Chicago Marathon, where Calvin Kipdoom just broke the world record marathon in two hours and 35, with a time of two hours and 35 seconds. Just an incredible effort. I wasn't able to watch live. I was working a local event where I was doing like post-race kind of massages and stuff with runners and just meeting in a bunch of runners. And it was our local half marathon. So I got to hang out with all, like basically all my friends. <laughs> There's like 600 runners and I know many of them and it's super fun. So it's just fun to cheer people on. But in the midst of that, this world record goes down. Just an incredible effort on a perfectly perfect weather day. It was gorgeous. But do you have any thoughts about, about it? Like any reflections in watching him or or anything like that? I just, I have one thought. I don't want to put any disrespect on Safana San's name either. If she yes. had ran 213 oh a month ago, that would have been a world record as well. 100%, yes. So, like, she ran 213. She killed it. So, she was incredible. No disrespect just, on Safana San. That was phenomenal. Think about how versatile she is right now. Totally. Just I mean, I was just having this conversation with someone earlier today. And this could be, I don't know, a buy-sell later on, but uh, of who is the best woman runner right now? Mm, $1,500. let us save it for buy or sell, but that's yeah, a really yeah, cause great I, question. Yeah, because some people wouldn't say Safan, and I think it's a fair argument. I would probably personally say Safan, but I got I to gotta go back and look at it. There, there's arguments for both. There's, there's probably right. three women I could think of off the top of my head that could all be running for that same thing. Four, four women right now that could probably, yeah. Women's running super exciting. They're right in, a, they're in a cool part. Like, yeah, there's cool time of history for women's distance running right now. It's pretty cool. So, super but, fun yeah, to watch him run. It. He negative split it, right? I think so. That's again. Crazy. I didn't get to watch live, so I, I wasn't. In on the details. Yeah, I couldn't either. I was watching Shout Out Sidious Mag because they had these like live reaction YouTube video things going. <laughs> and so like, I mean, they're just kicking back, kind of commentating on what they're seeing, you know, so you're not seeing the runners, yeah. you're watching them. But um, it was good. I mean, I was able to kind of stay in the loop and see what was going on. And as people were finishing, you know, they're like, oh, Clayton Young, he might get the Olympic standard. You know, it's like, oh, crap. Okay, cool. Like so, just kind of following that, and then I followed that until a little after Safan. I think right before Sisson finished, I had to go for my long run. So, 
Yeah. Just what a what a crazy race because, you know, look you look at a couple of years ago or even last year, the weather in Chicago could either be 85 and killer or it could be what you had today. And right. you get to see people run on a flat course and have a ton of fun and break world records. And, totally. You see some um, of the finishing videos of Molly Seidel coming in? Yes. She's just like, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> that was awesome. Just and I've, I ran Chicago in 2017, and it was one of those years where by the time I was at mile 15, it was 85, and I was dying. Ooh, and I, yeah. I cramped up like calves, both calves, both quads, and both hamstrings, all cramped at one point between mile 16 and 26. <laughs> that sucks. So, yeah, but it was such a, it's so cool to see runners continue to push the envelope. And mm-hmm. man, two hours and 35 seconds, pretty incredible. And that's almost what Kipchoge ran in the first sub two attempt. Cause I think it was Very two hours and 26 similar, seconds yeah. or two hours and 24 seconds or 25. So it's pretty incredible that that's what someone was able to throw down today. Not just someone, Calvin Kiptoon. So we had, we just, I feel like we had to acknowledge it and acknowledge yeah. that it wasn't in the $500 Adidas shoe. <laughs> I mean, who knows what they're going to retail the Alpha Fly 3 for? I mean, that was on both oh. of their feet between Kiptoon and Hassan. So. Right. And right. Kipchoge. So yeah. At Berlin. It'll be fun to fun to test that out when the time comes. But let's get into the real episode for today. As always, when we do our mailbag episode, our subjective of the day is what questions do you have for us? And we as you'll find out, we continue to try and put them into our future mailbag episodes. So feel free to drop a comment or send us an email at Doctors of Running at gmail.com to be able to leave us a question that we could address at a future mailbag. So we're going to kick it off here with our first question. This is from Aaron, uh, and he says this. Here's a question I've been thinking about for a while. It would be great to hear your thoughts. Do you think that the trainers that we use, like daily trainers, give us an indication of which race day super shoes will work best for each person? Uh, so he kind of goes on to ask a lot of questions, making some comparisons, like if the Boston 12 works well in training, does that mean the Audios Pro 3 would do, be a good choice? Um, Endorphin Elite or, or Endorphin Pro, if you're enjoying the speed, that kind of comparison. And he's trying to make some choices, but we'll go into that later. But first, what do you think about that initial question about if the type of trainer you like indicates what might be the best super shoe for you? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Aaron. Uh, when I look at shoe lineups, it's... I hate to give this answer because we always give this answer, but it depends. I think when you take a look at like a shoe lineup within a given company, there are some shoes that are meant to be training companions to some of those racing models. Mm-hmm. With that said, like uh, I remember I read over all these questions too before the show. I don't have it in front of me, but he had brought up the Asics Nova Blast at one point, right? Or was that someone else? Yeah, he he currently uses the Nova Blast for daily miles, yeah. Boston Twelve for tempo and long days. Yeah, and like, and he's previously enjoyed the Endorphin Speed too. Yeah, just different shoes. I feel like when I think you have to look at the lineup design structure and what they're going for because the Nova Blast is kind of like this kind of light, bouncy, fun, I don't know, it's a daily trainer, but you can kind of turn it up a little bit. I feel like the closest thing for the Nova Blast probably is the Super Blast. Like when you look at geometry and things, I don't feel like the Mm -hmm. Edge Plus and Metaspeed Sky Plus really complement the Nova Blast that well. But definitely not the definitely not the sky. That just has such a different geometry. I haven't ran in the edge, but that one would be probably closer. Um 
but yeah. Even sorry, that one, like, you know how they have that crash pad in the forefoot and the heel, and then it kind of has yeah. that kind of give and bounce to it? Uh, yeah. And the way the geometry is with that sharp heel and then kind of, like, gradually rounded forefoot, like, the Edge Plus definitely doesn't have as much of that. It feels more like a flat. Okay. Uh, I mean, definitely has like the stiff plate, and there's a little bit of a sharper toe spring. But I like if I'm looking at Nova Blast, I'm probably looking at Super Blast. Like if you're going to compare it, but like you look at the designs, and even in just the names, like that makes sense sequentially. Mm-hmm. When you look at the Adidas lineup and the Adi Zero lineup, I think about how those uppers fit. I think about the geometry of the shoes. That Adi Zero lineup is pretty close between the Boston, the Audios the Audios Pro, and the Takumi Sen 9. I don't know mm-hmm. why on earth I had problems with the Audios Pro 3, but I love all three of those other shoes. I'm the and only your problem person... was upper digging in, right? Like the yeah, upper it was d- like killing the lateral side of my foot. Yeah. And I, don't, but, and I, I got that a tiny bit in the Boston, but it didn't hurt me. And I can go run 20 miles in that shoe. I have run 20 miles in that shoe and be fine. But like Audios Pro 3, for whatever reason, I couldn't run more than like five without my foot hurting. And so it just was a no-go from the beginning. I I honestly don't know. I don't know if my pair was defective. If Adidas, if you're listening to that and you want to send me another one, feel free. (laughs) I would love another (laughs) pair to try it out. Um, Because I love the Takumi Sen fit. I love the Audios 8 fit. Like, But they're all similar. Like They kind of have that narrow Mm kind of heel they have that kind of like mm-hmm. pitch laterally coming in from the seams, and then they kind of have that like widened out forefoot and the relative feel of the forefoot. Yeah, like it's pretty similar. Uh, so I feel like that's a pretty good line of reasoning. And as far as the geometry and transitions, I didn't dislike my transitions in the Audios Pro 3. I feel like it lines up pretty well. But I think you just have to kind of look at the overall design of the shoe. Like, it used to be very cut and dry. Like Endorphin Speed Three and Endorphin or Endorphin Speed Two and Endorphin Pro Two were very similar. Now that's changed a little bit. With that said, I still feel like the general feel for most of these companies is designed in that way. And if they have a given training companion for whatever their super shoe is, then it's probably a pretty close match. Yeah, I, but I, I wouldn't say like if you're training in a Nimbus. That means the Edge Plus is going to work for you. I right. wouldn't Those say. Those are so different. Right. And I wouldn't say, like, let's say um, if you're running in a Mizuno Wave Rider, the Wave Rebellion Pro, like, I don't, I don't think it crosses <laughs> over in that Definitely way not. at all. No. So I think you have to look at, like, what the next shoe is on that lineup. And then take a quick look at them. And I feel like most of those companies are doing a pretty good job of matching. Like, hey, this is our workout shoe. You could probably get a little bit more like durability, mileage, training out of this one. And then this is your race day shoe. Because that is kind of the case for a decent chunk of the companies right now. Um, But I wouldn't dive in and say, oh, yes, because it's this company and that's still the same company, it's going to work. Yep. I think you hit a really good point where there's a difference between the shoes that are clearly designed in a singular line within a company, like the Boston to the Pro. Like they're all within the Audi Zero line of the Adidas models. Whereas, like, um, it, you, you mentioned the Nimbus 25. 
that's not in the same line as these the design of their super shoes. So I think that does that does make an impact. When I first read this question, one of the first things that came to my head was the question of what does best mean? You know, what are we defining best as? Does best mean the shoe that's going to give me the best running economy um, improvement compared to like a, a trainer or a regular racing flat? Or does best mean like the one that's going to be most similar in terms of comfort? I just kind of I think that does change maybe your answer a little bit as well. But in general, I think I agree with you and think there's a couple categories to consider. One of them is what's the foam, like what's the foam feel underfoot? And then two, what is the geometry? And three, what is the upper fit for you? And and so if you are running in something that is super you know, like a very non-exciting EVA, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but just, a, you know, I think of the Phantom 3, right? So like something that's just a super flat EVA, that might point you in a different direction than if you're used to running in like the endorphin speed. Like if you know you like the feel of Power Run PB, the type of foam that you could put under your foot might match up really well with another, you know, super shoe that has a similar foam feel. Um, similarly, if you like something with that runs with that higher drop feel, you might like something that isn't going to give you that negative drop if you are a rear foot striker like me. Or like when I run in the um, Rocket X2 uh, or if I run in the um, Metaspeed Sky, I feel like I'm just falling into the heel. And so if you know that you don't prefer kind of that lower drop feel, you can find shoes that even, in, but I think it's unique because it's not just drop, but it's the way that the foam compresses because you look at the SC Elite 3, and that shoe has a four millimeter drop, but to me feels higher than the Sky, which has five millimeters. It just really depends on the drop. But I do think if you find that you really like a rocker that's a, like an early stage rocker, like you get in typical Hoka trainer, you'd want to find a, a, a super shoe that has that similar rocker feel versus like the Endorphin Elite, which has a late rocker that you just got to get up on. So I think that comparing your shoe in terms of the types of things you have, whether it fits the foam, geometry, and then the upper fit, that's what I would be looking for, at least in terms of comfort. Because what we don't know yet is what predicts somebody to respond well to a super shoe. We just don't know the exact things for the running economy testing that hasn't been done yet. We haven't been able to find those predictor variables. So it's still a little bit of a, of a guessing game, but I, I think if you can find something that you're confident and comfortable in, that's probably going to be your best bet. Just something that doesn't throw you too much. Yeah. And I will say on a personal side note, the Boston 12 is one of my favorite shoes this year. And so being someone that is in a situation where like I do run long runs in that shoe, the closest companion that I have felt to the way the rocker and the transitions are probably is the Endorphin Elite. They both have pretty late stage rockers. They both kind of have this gradual lean into the forefoot. Then it really pops off, you know. Um, I've heard the Audios Pro 3 is very similar. I just didn't get enough mileage in them, you know, like. It's funny, I, I had this conversation with somewhere. I was like, oh, yeah, the Endorphin Elite, I love that shit. And they're like, oh, what do you think about that in comparison to the Audios Pro 3? I feel like they're very similar. And I was like, oh, I can't tell you much. Can't I, tell you. <laughs> I withdrew myself from that one. So, yep. But uh, yeah, I would just look at comfort. And ultimately, you just got to try them on, find something that has a good return policy. Don't abuse the shoe, but do a little bit something to see if it if it works for you. And usually, you know, pretty quick if you've tried enough shoes on. And I think too, my last, my last uh, kind of specific example is you brought up the Nimbus 25 and that's a really soft compliant 
trainer that is a little bit stiffer in the forefoot just with how much foam is underneath there. So I feel like if you ha- enjoy something that soft, I would actually not look at their AD- or Asics racing shoes. I would look at like the New, the New Balance SC Trainer or sorry, SC Elite version three. So much softness underneath your foot. So you'd get that similar like slight rocker, really soft. And so that's, I would think more about those qualities than the specific lines. But I agree with you too. If you're training in a shoe that is designed as the training companion that has some of the same foam compounds that you love it's probably a a a pretty good guess if you're enjoying that one to to just bump it up okay so our next question is from mike says hey guys i've been scouring the internet for a clear answer on this one but so far no luck and he asks with all factors being equal would you taper differently for a 5K than you would for a marathon? Let's hypothetically say I cloned myself and we both did a marathon block together, every run and every workout exactly the same, but one of me runs a marathon and the other runs a 5K on the same day. Do we taper differently? Yeah, I think if we're looking at all things equal and this is a true, like, this is my race, this is the thing, like the thing I'm going for. You know, some people call it an A race. Um Everyone's a little bit different on tapers as far as how they respond to it personally. With that said, the tapers are surprisingly similar for me if, um, depending on the distances. Now that workout might change. You know, I usually will kind of have like a shortened long run. Let's say the race is Saturday. If you're running a 5K, it's probably Saturday. If you're on the track, maybe 5K or I mean uh, Friday because a lot of track invites are on Fridays. Um, so depending on what that week looks like, but I'm just going to assume it's a road 5k. That's probably a Saturday road race for the marathons, probably on a Sunday taper is probably going to look pretty similar. You're probably going to have a shortened long run on that Sunday. That Monday, Tuesday is probably gonna be a little bit lighter. Usually we use Wednesday to kind of sharpen up a little bit. Um, and that if I'm doing a marathon, that might be, I don't know, like, We'll we'll do like some ladders sometimes, like a four eight twelve sixteen or something. Paces are a slightly faster than marathon pace, you know. Just make, making you feel good and having enough rest in between to just kind of feel sharp and feel, just feel good about things. If you're running a five k now, that changes the pacing on that because it wouldn't make sense if you're running a five k at let's just say six minute pace to go run seven thirty pace on your track work or your speed work on that day so the, usually you would go a little bit faster than your race pace for shorter distances kind of sharpen up feel good take the next two days or so to kind of lighten up again and then saturday probably be a short run with some strides and some drills to kind of mimic that feel you'd get on sunday and i said sunday for the road race for the marathon saturday friday would be that so <laughs> it just depends on like what day like what it looks like but for the most part the bread and butter of it is pretty much the same giving yourself an active rest without going completely off the handle you want to still feel sharp and ready to to run i think what's interesting about this question is it's it has the premise with all factors being equal and i think the reality is if you were going through a training block for a 5k it would it would look qualitatively and quantitatively different than if you're training for a marathon, um, especially depending on where you're at in your running journey. So my bread and butter is working with runners who are newer to the sport 
and ones who are trying to do something new for the first time. So if somebody's going through their first marathon training block, the amount of time that we I give them in maybe their first taper is going to be a little bit longer than what we might do for their 5K. And part of that's just because of the cumulative fatigue that they're getting of different types of muscle fibers and all that kind of stuff. So it, depending on who you are, you know, at the beginning, it's a little bit of guesswork. Cause like you said in the beginning, David, everyone responds different to taper. And so if, if it's your first time, I would probably guess that some of the efforts and, and time on your feet, um, total would be pulled back a little bit more from the, uh, in the marathon taper compared to the 5k, but ratio wise, I bet it would look pretty similar where like the amount of recovery that you're trying to give your body through decreased demand, it would probably be kind of similar, but you would just have a little bit of a different um, total amount, but the ratios would be would be about the same. But I think when it comes to taper, every single taper that you do is a learning experience and you learn how did I respond to a two-week taper, a three-week taper, a one-week taper, a four-day taper. You'll learn what works for you. I'm still learning what works best for me. I think I'm still trying to dial that in. Um, but I think that that's going to be a, it's a personal thing where you're going to learn how much time and space does my body need to be at its peak. So I think it is a tough question. It's probably good that you couldn't find a clear answer on the internet because that means that uh, people aren't putting out an answer that that's uh, oversimplified for this. Anything else on this one? No, everyone just responds differently. Find what works for you. Most people are going to do one to two weeks somewhere in that window. Um, and ultimately, you want to feel good on race day. So that that's the ultimate goal. So do what you need to do to feel good on race day. Some people like full days off. I don't like it. It makes me a little bit groggy. Um, yeah. I just feel a little bit flat and heavy. That's me. Some people love it. So, All right, here we go. So the next question is Laura Norton from Maryland. Uh, and she says, I'm a big fan of your podcast and have a question for your next mailbag episode. I'm currently dealing with bilateral proximal hamstring tendinopathy. I'm curious, has running in super shoes increased the incidence of this injury? Are the shoes moving forces up the chain? Um, I can start a little bit on, on this one. Um, and I think it's interesting. I think that this trend towards... S- so I have a small sample size, right? I'm working with runners in central Wisconsin. I work through our running lab, you know, with runners. All the, Like that's just what I'm doing most of my clinic time right now. But even that's a relatively small sample size because I'm working with runners in central Wisconsin. And not everyone around here is running in super shoes all the time. But I have been working with a lot of people with um, hip flexor issues um, or anterior hip issues as well as kind of these proximal hamstring issues. And I've got... In the last, you know, six months, I've worked with, you know, a handful, like probably could still fit on one hand, but a number of runners that have had proximal hamstring tendinopathy in particular. And I think that super shoes are one more extreme example of why we might be seeing more of these proximal injuries. And, you know, this is all anecdotal. We don't have new statistics yet on all of this stuff from like large databases, but I think even before the super shoe training, we've worked into maximal shoes with rockers. And once you throw in that rocker, we do know that it decreases the amount of demand on the calf and ankle um, complex, but that does mean that the force has to come from somewhere else. And often that means that it biomechanically would go up the chain towards the hip. So I think it's very possible that they're contributing to it. I also think that means that if you're training in highly rockered shoes and all the stiff stuff, uh, stiff stuff, is that the right word? Yeah. Then you should be uh, 
matching your rehabilitation and your exercise and strengthening regimen to the demands that the running is going to put on you. So anecdotally, I think, yes, we've seen more. It's very possible that training in super shoes is even more extreme than what we've been seeing over the last like 10, 15 years when it comes to training in maximally rockered shoes just in general. Do you have anything to add to that one? Yeah, I think you hit it pretty well. Uh, and I like that you brought in just this idea of Max Cushion Rocker training shoes as well, because when we look at the designs, they're awfully quite similar, right? And it wasn't always with these large rocker profiles. That's been a relatively new thing. I mean, what Hoko is probably one of the first companies to truly kind of lean into that. And that wasn't that long ago. And so when we look at anecdotally, we don't have that much data to go off of. And all we can really do is take a look at the shoe designs. What are they running in? Does that affect what we can see in front of us? And anecdotally speaking, if you're only in these high stack rocker shoes, then I mean, that could lead us to believe that to some degree. Same thing with intrinsic foot muscles and different kinds of stabilizing things just in general. But uh it's hard to draw a specific line from the shoe to that because I don't know, for all I know, you're running in a, you know, like a new balance rebel or something. Well, she does a super shoes, but like yeah, something, yeah. I don't know. There's just so many wild cards. And then like, I don't know if you had a big jump in speed work and that's why your hamstrings are sore. I don't like, there's just uh, all kinds of reasons why your hamstrings could be affected from training and it might not just be the shoes. But with that said, anecdotally speaking, could have some potential for it. <laughs> Hard to say. Yep. Yeah, and, and I totally was not answering this specific to her scenario. That's that's a great thing to point out because I was just answering. In general, sure, yeah, we increase loading up there. But yeah, for to, I think we, we can over-attribute um, over changes positive or negative to shoes because it's such an easy variable to look at and control and all the other ones still exist and it can be can be tough to tease it out i will say warm up better and sleep more yeah totally (laughs) i have no idea what your warm-up routine looks like it feels like a cheap shot but i will say anecdotally someone who does have proximal hamstring not to the point where it takes me out but i have it pretty recurrent and i've had it honestly over the last like year or so um, on and off. If I warm up better, I do my swings, I do my skips, I do my strides. Usually goes fine. Starts acting up, I start sleeping a little bit more. <laughs> Seems to go away a little bit better. Like it's like play play with the recovery, play with all the other things, and that can be completely independent of shoes because we're running in different shoes all of the time. So for me, that kind of t- is an example of someone who has it but isn't running in a specific shoe design all the time. Right. And I think the important thing there is um, the the emerging evidence on proximal hamstring tendinopathy makes us feel less clear about the actual pain generating source of this stuff. Right. So, you know, it's not necessarily that you have a an unhealthy tendon on a structural level. There are so many things that can lead to that sort of soreness right there. And so, dealing with all of those other factors in your running pie of health, <laughs> you know, all the different slices. Working on those is going to be really important. All right, our next question is from Jake. It says, my name is Jake. I uh, love the podcast. I've been listening for a bit now. i got a question for consideration in one of your Q&A episodes. 
for runners dealing with multiple injury types slash issues over time, do you have any tips for consolidating strength and conditioning to get the most bang for the overall injury prevention? To elaborate, I'm good for at least one injury a year. Strength and uh, strength training and PT have helped overcome IT band, runners' knees, stress fractures at various points, but the routines needed to maintain them add up to a lot of time and money. Once I start thinking I'm good to go and back off the injury-specific routine and save time, um, always well after the appointed time too. So he he's saying that he does it for a long time afterwards. Stuff will start to act up again, and so it'll rear its head later. Um, so I think he's just trying to figure out how can you consolidate this stuff? How can you avoid having to spend so much time and money to be able to see a PT? Um, how do you, how do you kind of handle that? Yeah. I like this part. He says, "How do I how do I keep these issues at bay without paying a PT to handle it every time?" Oh, I saw Parentheses. That. Yeah. No, no offense, <laughs> worth every penny, but the copays are a killer. Absolutely, they are. Yes, and <laughs> I, I am totally with you. agree. Yeah, I always tell people, I'm like, if I do my job well, that means you won't need me. <laughs> like, yes, I've got a weird yep. job in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great question, and everyone's a little bit different with this as well. But I feel like for the most part, most people tend to respond well with a pretty simple philosophy, and that's keep the hard days hard and the easy days easy. So what that basically means is, let's say you have a workout day. Now, it doesn't have to be immediately following the workout. For time demands, sometimes people do like to put it in that way, um, but you can still take a few hours off and then do a weight session or something later in that day. But anecdotally speaking, well, there's also some data showing it, but like if you go um, and you do like your track session or your road workout session, and then you go into a strength and conditioning session, and then, I don't know, two, three times a week, and you're probably doing two, three workouts a week, you know, those easy days, keep them easy. Those are meant to recover. You usually will have greater effects on your super compensation, like as far as like what you're putting in, recovering, building, essentially is what that means. And so, as long as you're not burning yourself into the ground and you are recovering, usually if you kind of follow a general principle of hard days hard, easy days easy, can go really well. Usually, you have more than one easy day after those hard workout days, meaning from the running workout side of things. So, some people do like to have it the next day. But for me personally, I do like to have it same day. That's always worked pretty well for me. Um, that way you kind of have one big load day, get some sleep, have a nice couple of easy days, and you feel pretty good by the time that next day comes around. Um, I don't like to be dipping into the well too much. That's just me personally, as far as like on a constant daily basis type right. thing. And I'm sure, Jake, if you're listening to this, um, you can understand it's hard for us to give specific advice on on your situation and how to consolidate because we don't know if you have a base level of like regular strength training that you do, right? So you you said you back off of the like injury specific rehab you're doing, but does that mean that you just stop strength training altogether? Does that mean, you know, and so when it comes to bang for your buck, it really is going to depend on what's your starting point. But I think like David said, the having the building blocks solid at the beginning where you're not um, over overstressing your body beyond it, what it, it can handle. So philosophically, how I would approach a question like this for getting bang to your buck is you want to look at what are my running demands and what are my physical capacities. And you don't want the running demand, running demand to be greater than your physical capacity. How do you know your physical capacity? That might be finding a place that you could do like a once a year or twice a year, like 
you know, testing with a P, a running PT who could look at the strength, you know, from, you know, your core down through your legs, take a look at everything, look at your mobility and just see right now with who you are in January, what sort of deficits should you focus on for the next six months and build a routine that addresses those major things that you're seeing from a, maybe a strength standpoint. And then you could check in with them six months later and just reassess or if it's quarterly or whatever, that could be one way to try to get ahead of it. There's no guarantee that that would work, but it could help you focus the types of training that you want to do. When it comes to, if we're talking about doing strength training in general, I would want to find exercises um, that that get globally as much as possible. So some of my favorite like three are to do something that targets your calves, something that's going to target kind of like quads and it can be quads, hamstring, glute together, and then something kind of posterior chain specific. So, you know, weighted calf raises being one like some kind of hex bar squat, and then something single legs, like a single leg lunge. So I feel like if you can pick three exercises even like that, I think that could be really helpful. We also talked about on a previous episode that study that just came out in the beginning of 2023 that had a a strength training routine that did show to decrease injury. And it was, I think, three days a week um, where they had to do about 20 to 35 minutes of exercise, maybe check that out. And, you know, we have a, a shakeout about that as well. And I have all the exercises listed. Um, so that, that would be another option is there's something there in the literature that worked with runner with a, with a certain group of runners, maybe start there as a building block. Or if you have a PT that you trust, see them prophylactically and see if they have some sort of, um, service that you could do that that's maybe cash based that, no, you wouldn't be able to use your insurance and it wouldn't be a copay, but it might be cheaper. You know, I know like that's what we do is, you know, our cash-based stuff is is more affordable. Um, it just doesn't go towards deductibles, but you can use HSA. So it's a complicated question and we don't have a specific thing, but I would just try to figure out are the demands that you have of your running, are you doing too much, too fast? Um, does it match the strength and mobility that you have um, in your body? But that's a really good question and hope that some of the thoughts that we had can can help you hone in and make the best use of your time because it's not easy to I know some of the exercises I give to people early in rehab are like one muscle that you work on might take or one movement that you work on might take you 10 minutes (laughs) and you got to do like four different movements so I just know it can take a long take a long time I, uh, Anything else on that one Yeah I just want to say that Nathan forgot arm day Arm day yes I, I Jesus, felt like you were going to call me you're out gonna, for that. You're going to say whole body and completely exclude everything from the abdominal region up. Well, we only like. run with our legs, so <laughs> we, don't, we don't do anything else. Just some basic <laughs> postural support. You could throw in some bands, some rotate, like just some basic rotation, some rows. Like that would don't still benefit you, and it's quick and fast, and that could easily be thrown into that program without having an entirely <laughs> other day dedicated to it. So. <laughs> Just kind of like prioritizing a few exercises and just and working on them. That's kind of how I do it. I mean, we we work full time. You know, it's like I'll run sometimes. Jesus, fourteen miles before work. You know, and I've got a nine o'clock client. Like, and then it's like you work nine to whatever your lunch is, and then I'm just squeezing something into my lunch while I'm doing notes and stuff. So, like, I don't exactly have the perfect strength and conditioning routine either, but I, I try to just kind of prioritize a couple things, what I feel I need, and then I just kind of go to work from there. Yeah, it's great. Also, when I was saying that you don't need your arms, I was being sarcastic. I totally no, no, he was David. being serious. Yeah, he doesn't believe <laughs> in 
<laughs> I don't believe in arms. <laughs> he doesn't believe in arms. He's T-Rex gang. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, this is a question from Katrina. She said, I was curious what your experience has been working with runners who are trying to manage hip impingement syndrome, cons- syndrome conservatively. Since it's a bone issue, can PT really help manage pain slash symptoms long-term? Will running make it worse down the line? Do you ever work with runners who are able to manage this injury and get back to running, even racing longer distances like half and full marathons with PT alone? I think it's a great question. When you take a look at things anatomically, oh, you have some hip impingement stuff going on too, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll talk about I'll, my. I'll, I'll talk you... about my experience. Do you want me to go first? Sure. Yeah, I feel like you have okay. the most like personal experience with it. I've yeah, got this my is like, like anatomical, you know, theoretical way to approach it, but you you live it, so. Sure. Yeah, I think what what we know is um, so the the medical term for this is femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, FAI. and it can yep. be caused by a lot of things. Yeah, FAI, and so you know it sounds like you may have had imaging that's showing bony changes. I've personally had imaging uh, through X-ray that has shown bony changes. I have what's called a cam lesion and a pincer lesion it means that i have overgrowth of both like the ball and the neck of that ball and the socket which just means that the bones come together a lot more quickly um than they do uh if you if you have more space obviously so i have pretty severe uh fai when it comes to the anatomical radiographic findings so i went in just my story i guess i was i ran i raced a 5k this was number of years ago now. And I had some pretty intense anterior hip pain and thigh pain. It would radiate down my thigh pretty intense just with like sitting. I couldn't sit at work. Um, I would have to be standing when I was working with people. It was pretty intense. So I ended up trying to work on it conservatively for about four months and it just wasn't getting better. I went and I saw um, an orthopedist to get another opinion. He took x-rays and I hadn't had any imaging up to that point. And this is where they showed me the kind of the changes in that cam and pincer lesion. And what he said to me is, I want you to get an MRI and then I'd love to get you scheduled for surgery next week. Uh, And this is a surgeon I really like, by the way, like I respect him, which made it feel all the scarier. And he actually said to me in the meeting, he said, um, so what we would do is I want to do a hip resurfacing. We call them hip preservation procedures. And we would want to do that so that it can preserve your hip for the long term and delay a hip replacement. He said, but if we go in there and it's bad enough, we will just do a hip replacement um, while we're in there. And that freaked me out because I'm I, at the time I was right. 30 years old or 29. I think I was 29 years old when I went right. in and I talked to him and I was, I like my heart rate was just racing. I was like really thrown by that conversation. And it also was scary because we had radiographs to back up you know, what's going on. It's like, Oh, you've got this big overgrowth of your bone. So I had to sit with that. I ended up not doing the MRI, (laughs) um, honestly, because of money, uh, we have a huge deductible and it would have cost me like $6,000 and I wasn't ready to do that. Um, and I still, to this day, haven't, haven't had surgery. Um, I did a lot of rehab. I did a lot of strengthening. Uh, for me, one of the things that ended up helping was a lot of mobility and uh, strength work of my hip adductors, my adductors, um, kind of the forgotten hip muscle with all the attention that the glute med gets <laughs> and the piriformis gets, you know? So I was working on my adductors. For me, that ended up being 
part of my puzzle that started turning things around. But since then, I have personally been back to racing. Uh, Since then, I have ran my best marathon I've ever ran. I also PR'd my 5K, um, or sorry, I PR'd my my 20K after that over this past year. So in short, yes, it's very possible. I think there are still question marks in terms of like, what's my future 20 years from now look like? Because literally the jury is out on this. We just don't know. The way I like to approach it, and obviously coming from a PT background, I'd rather work on all of the ways that I can improve the amount of mobility and space that I can make so that I don't have to go through a surgery now um, to potentially prevent one later. I just don't think, you know, and, and I'd love to hear from a surgeon who maybe has some really good evidence on hip preservation procedures, but I just don't think the evidence is quite solid enough for me to jump in on a, on a surgical option for myself right now because I was able to rehabilitate to the point where I can go um, and not have to have the pain afterwards. Like I ran that, like my, my hip has never been an issue when it comes to running, especially because when you go think about hip range of motion for long distance running, you're not necessarily pushing into these end ranges where you're leading to that impingement in the hip. And so I, if you can work on your mechanics to avoid hip internal rotation, hip adduction and keep a stable pelvis and also work on the mobility through your low back. And like, if you can work on the stuff around your hip to maximize their capacity, work on your mechanics so that you're not dipping into those ranges that lead to an impingement. Um, I think you, I think it's totally possible. And obviously that's the route that I personally chose for myself. Um, I also have worked with runners who have done both directions. And I actually have one that I worked with where on one hip they had surgery and on, and they had a laparoscopic surgery on the other hip. We treated it conservatively and they're doing great in both. So you know, like the, it, it's, they're in a good spot and it is a, it can be a scary thing, but that's my story in terms of coming through it conservatively. And it's, I think it's totally possible. Um, but David, what do you want to add anything to it? No. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's very insightful and it's, I think it's very helpful. You know, it's a very human experience and way to look and approach this. I, I feel like you touched it very well. When I take a look at anatomically what's going on, something's impinging it, right? Whether it's a cam lesion, pincer lesion, something isn't letting that thing go into full range. And traditionally, the most impinging positions are going to be flexion, hip coming up, i.e. sitting like you were mentioning, internal rotation, adduction. There's a test called a fader. It just stands for flexion, adduction, internal rotation. And you basically take that hip, put it up forward, jam that thing inwards, and be like, does this hurt? And it's like, yes, that hurts. <laughs> but um, <laughs> essentially, when we look at running, there's an impact as well. So you're landing, that femur kind of with gravity kind of comes down and adducts and internally rotates. And so even though it's not all three, it is two of them. And so that can create a little bit of a jarring force into that region. And so I, the way I approach that, and I've been able to manage a lot of these conservatively as well from the people that do come in and see me, like is being able to control that, being able to create enough torque to help stabilize your pelvis, your hips, your spine. Like that's huge because that helps you attenuate forces and that doesn't go through the passive structures as much. And you did say that. And so I feel like you touched on pretty much everything I would like to. And I actually really appreciate that you brought up the adductors as well, because even though they're on the inside of the groin and they go this way and they kind of internally rotate a little bit, it feels counterintuitive, but they actually do work really well as pelvic stabilizers as well, especially yeah. when you're running. 
And they can help yeah. a little bit when you're in that end range flexion and that extension. They can almost act a little bit like a hamstring and a hip flexor at the same time. They can kind of help augment that yep. transition. And I think people don't talk about that enough. So I honestly, I couldn't have said it better myself. So yeah, I appreciate cool. what your answer was. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to share that story too. I think it's helpful. It's one that I process through. It, you know, it's it's a gift that I could use that story to relate to people when they're processing all of the decisions because of how because of how unknown some of the stuff with hip is right now. It can be scary to try to navigate it. So I I have found it a gift to be able to empathize. I think with with people. Um, I was going to say something else. Oh, with the adductors, you know. We again, we think about pelvic drop and that being a job to control by the by the abductors, so the glute med. But if you don't have anything stabilizing the inside, you just have a floppy pelvis. And I think that the adductors are this huge muscle group. Glute med is tiny in comparison to these adductors, and so there's a reason that they're there. They're also not super well understood, but they do act in multiple ways, like David said, as a hamstring, but they just give you that stable platform to operate off of their really neat muscle. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of fun stuff there. So David, my last question for you is if, (laughs) if he was wearing the adios, whatever Evo one, does he go sub two hours? Of course he does. I hate this question. Of course he does. Why are you asking I know I this? asked him. Oh, <laughs> uh, of course. He, why? Don't. Why? Why would you even ask me this, Nathan? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We don't know. <laughs> we have no idea. <laughs> we have no idea. We I mean, no if idea. you do take, we'd have to do some math on it. But if you take that whole like was a hundred grams a percent. If you do it Can't do and it. that's enough to take 20-something seconds off, maybe, I don't know. Who knows? No, because the geometry of the foam, <laughs> everything's different. It's, But I, I think we should dispel the fact that we can't just say, if they were wearing this shoe, it's automatically better because it's lighter. I don't think it's that simple. Anyway, <laughs> I'm so glad everybody came. We love doing these mailbags because we, we love interacting with you through this. So thank you for submitting questions. Please submit more again by commenting if you're on YouTube um, or if you are listening, you can send us an email at gmail.com. So thank you for joining us today and we'll look forward to talking to you next time.